The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. Good afternoon, listeners. Welcome to our Sunday afternoon spatial program, and I am your host for today. Thank you for tuning in. I think we're going to have a very exciting and interesting program, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it and learn right along with me. And uh, I will introduce our guest, Dr. Sharma, in just a few minutes. A couple of very, very quick announcements. We're on the 60-minute format. So if you do want to participate with us by phone or email, please watch the time so that you can do so. And another favor to ask, don't contact us right at the 11th hour as we're closing down. Give us enough time so that our guests can respond or answer your question, okay? So uh, hopefully you can do that. Uh, As for the coming programs, uh, Dr. Brandenburg, Dr. B, is back with us. He has a peer-reviewed paper that has been published on his nuclear theories and from a credible uh, organization, too, in physics. And I will be posting that paper or the links to it this afternoon on the blog. So for those of you who will be listening to the show, I suggest you read his paper. Uh, A little note, it's real heavy-duty physics, or let's put it this way. It's more heavy-duty physics than I can follow and understand across the board. But the reports that I've gotten from people within the industry are that it's a superb paper. So go check it out. And uh, we're doing a special show July 20th. Maybe that will be an important date to some of you. And if it's not, I suggest you go Google it because I'm not going to tell you about it. But Rand Simberg is doing a special program with us on that date, Thursday, July 20th. We have Patrick O'Neill, uh, who is part of the space station team. He's with us Friday morning. And our friend John Strickland, NSS fan um, and participant, is back with us on energy analysis and more from space Sunday, July 23rd. But don't miss the Dr. B show. He's always a, a great guest and very entertaining and very, very informative. Our toll-free number for today is 866 866- Six eight seven seven two two three. Email as always, Doctor Space D R S P A C E at thespaceshow dot com. Remember all of our newsletters and website newsletters and the upcoming show information on the newsletter. It is all up to date. But uh, sometimes programs change, so I urge you, if you're interested in a show, to check the upcoming newsletter on the homepage because that will always have the latest information if the guest did change. Everything we do is archived, so don't forget that. We have a space show store where you can get logo wear. You enter that store clipping 
clicking on Pepper listening to the space show. Remember, we're a 501c3, and we are listener-supported, meaning we always need your support. And uh, I always hate asking you for it, but uh, there would be no space show without your support. So please do support us as your contributions that allow us to do the kind of shows you're going to hear today and much, much more. On the upper right, there is a link to the PayPal. That is the easiest way to uh, support us. If you use Zelle, our Zelle email address to our Chase Bank account is david at onegiantleapfoundation.org. And, of course, you can mail a check to One Giant Leap, and uh, it goes to Las Vegas, and that address is on the PayPal button and our website. Or please email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com if you um, are having trouble finding the mailing address. And as a nonprofit 501c3, if you're a federal U.S. taxpayer, you do get a tax deduction for your gift. We are a Nevada nonprofit corporation, so factor that in uh, if you're interested in state deductions. And if you have any questions about any of this, I'm happy to answer them. The best way to reach me always is Dr. Space at thespaceshow.com. Remember, we have sponsors. And uh, one billboard advertiser, Dr. Ben Arroyo. Our sponsors are Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space in Luxembourg, the National Space Society, Celestis Astrox, the Space Foundation, and again, Dr. Ben Arroyo with his great books on lunar development, lunar habitats, etc. Remember, if you buy those books off of the banner ad, Amazon donates a portion of your purchase price back to the space show. Sponsors get the banner ad going across our homepage. You can change it whenever you want. And on the longer format shows, I read a PR message from each sponsor. But as this is a 60-minute format show, I shout out to Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space in Luxembourg, the National Space Society, Celestis Astrox, Dr. Ben Arroyo, who's over there at Rutgers, and the Space Foundation. Listeners, our guest today is Dr. Arun Sharma. He's an assistant professor at the Board of Governors Regenerative Medicine Institute at the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. The Sharma lab research focuses on the application of induced pluripotent stem cells for studying cardiovascular biology, modeling disease in a dish, using genome editing and developing platforms for screening drug toxicity and efficacy. And um, he has led a project that sent human-derived cardiomyocytes to the ISS to study the effects of microgravity on human heart function. And they've got a project at Cedars where they're about to send stem cells back up to space. And he's the PI of that project. I suggest you read his full bio. It is on the Space Show website, and we'd rather talk with him rather than my continuing to read about him, but he is an award-winning, very highly recognized scientist. Dr. Sharma, welcome to the Space Show today. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I know when we first talked a while back, you told me you had a space interest going back a long, long time. Tell us about your space interest. How did you get it, and did that influence you to where you are today? 
Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to take a step back in time. It's, um, you know, really, I love talking about this stuff. It's really my, my first passion. Um, going all the way back, I was, I was born in India, and I moved with my family to uh, a small town that a lot of folks listening to the show might be familiar with, and that's Huntsville, Alabama, Rocket City, USA. Uh, I moved there when I was two. And that's where I grew up. I grew up in the back door of the Marshall Space Flight Center. I actually never had a chance to go to Marshall when I was growing up just because of, you know, security and all that. And I didn't have a, a valid reason to go. You can't really go on school field trips out to Marshall. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was just a wonderful place to grow up, you know, really strong space influence. It's the home of space camp. I unfortunately never went to space camp as a kid, and I'm still kind of bummed out about that. But... I'm definitely going to be sending my, my, my son there in the near future. And that's kind of where I uh, got the, the itch for space in the first place. You know, I just, um, growing up in a city like that, it's sort of, you absorb it just by living there. You know, all the, the high schools and the schools are named after astronauts or uh, figures relevant to the space program. For example, I went to... Chaffee Elementary School, I went to Challenger Middle School, I went to Gus Grissom High School, uh, now there's a Columbia High School as well over there, and um, Huntsville has been rapidly growing in the years recently with the, the new space race and the privatized space race, and uh, it's always been a hub for space research, and that's kind of how I, I got into it in the first place. Were your parents in the, in the space industry coming to Huntsville from India, or why did they end up in Huntsville anyway? Yeah, so my dad's actually a scientist himself. He's a physics professor. He works at a small university in Huntsville that, um, and he, he actually has his own laboratory working on fiber optics and sensor design. And he actually collaborated with NASA quite a bit um, on some of the, the rocket sensor design and, and fiber optic designs there. So uh, there was uh, definitely an influence. In my family as well, and my mom was also tangentially involved in, in, in research. So I think, you know, the combination of growing up in a city like Huntsville and also having uh, parents who are interested in science kind of naturally stimulated my passion for space and, and science in that way. So that influenced you to want to stand, send stem cells to space, I take it then, right? <laughs> yeah, so that, that was a bit of a jump. I mean... You know, you're wondering, okay, I had such a, an interest in space growing up in Huntsville. Why did I end up becoming a biologist, right? And uh, it's, it's a, a different reasons, I suppose. I mean, space is definitely my first passion, but there are so many cool and exciting technologies that were emerging in biology when I was growing up. You know, I remember growing up and hearing about Dolly the Sheep, you know. Dolly the right, sheep I remember that. that. Yeah, that's my age oh, group, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, that was one of the first things that really excited me about biology because, you know, I grew up as a science fiction fan as well. I think a lot of us who are interested in space have also inevitably become sci-fi fans too, but uh, I, I told myself, wow, that was that's so cool. You can actually clone somebody. You can call, clone something, a mammal. Uh, of course, people haven't been cloned quite yet, but... Uh, that's what inspired me to go into biology, and uh, after graduating high school, I went to Duke University, also in Southeast, uh, to major in biology and learn about regenerative medicine. Like I said, you know, I, I've always been interested in science fiction, and big trope in science fiction is the, the ability of 
different people and different things to regenerate themselves, right? Right. Yeah, for example, of Wolverine in, in X-Men, <laughs> amazing regenerative <laughs> ability. Um, but also, you know, examples in nature. There's certain animals out there, like salamanders, lizards, they can cut off their tails and they'll just grow right back. Um, mammals, believe it or not, we actually have somewhat of a regenerative ability as well, but it's lost. It's lost over the course of uh, the development of the mammal. So the example I like to give is, you know, really early on uh, after a mammal is born or even in, in the womb, there's actually a really strong ability for that mammal to regenerate its, its uh, injuries. And we can kind of see this. We can see this because kids tend to be very regenerative and, you know, they can heal from injuries way better than the rest of us can. Uh, and I definitely can see that as, as a new father as well, you know. Kids are getting banged up all the time, but it seems like they're able to bounce back a lot quicker than the rest of us can. Um, so that's definitely there. Um, and there's another technology that was really, really cool that emerged when I was in college that I had just, just heard about. And this was what I actually ultimately ended up working on during my career, and I'm still working on this right now. And these are called induced chlorophyllic stem cells, and we can talk more about that in a little bit. Um, but stem cell research is something that excited me as an undergrad, you know, the ability of uh, cells to regenerate themselves, you know, the sci-fi dream of being able to grow organs outside the body and use them for replacing organs that are malfunctioning, right? So that's sort of how my biology dreams came about. And it's actually one other element of this. Um, myself, uh, you know, folks in my family and a lot of us know uh, folks who are afflicted with heart disease. Right. Cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of mortality in the country and around the world, and it's unfortunately not getting that much better. So this is something that was personal for me. I wanted to figure out ways that we might be able to regenerate the heart, say, after somebody has a heart attack. Maybe you can intersect uh, regenerative medicine or stem cell biology with heart biology. And bringing it back to examples from nature, there are certain fish and animals out there that can actually grow back their hearts after a portion of the heart is actually cut off. And mammals do not have that ability. So I was really excited by that when I heard about that as an undergrad, you know, this, uh, as a student at Duke, that, oh, wow, there's certain animals that can grow back their hearts. Maybe we can harness that ability down the road using stem cells or regenerative medicine to help fix people's hearts after they have heart attacks. So. Um, that's kind of how the biology side of it came into play. Well, as I understand it, humans can grow back a part of the liver. Is that correct, or does that disappear as you get to be an old geezer? Yeah, that, that's actually a great example. So the liver is an example of an organ in the body. Even in humans and mammals, that grows back pretty rapidly. It's got a, an amazing regenerative ability. You know, you can grow back uh, a large portion of liver tissue just from a small segment of it, and it'll just grow right back. That's that's true. I mean, mammals and adult humans still have that ability to grow back their livers, but, you know, as I alluded to earlier, the ability to regenerate in mammals is really, it declines over the course of aging. So as you get older, even the liver doesn't regenerate as well. So you got to take care of yourself well, <laughs> as you get older. I've always had an interest in, in this. When Dolly the Sheep came along, I wanted to clone my um, my dog that I had at that time. 
Uh, obviously, that didn't happen, but I was, I actually made phone calls to find out about it. And, um, you know, I, I too know people with, um, all sorts of different body parts that aren't doing well, and I've told you I have knees and, and just other issues, so this is really something, uh, that is, uh, very important to me. I have a, a CF son, and, uh, sending uh, CF cells to space years and years and years ago on the on the ISS and the shuttle uh, for liquid crystal type of growth opened up uh, that entire research area. So that 20 years later they they have they don't have cures, but they have drugs that give CF people a normal life. Uh, that had a root in going back to space. So this has really been a, an interesting field for me. Um, first of all, why don't you tell us what pluripotent stem cells are? Sure, sure. And I'll actually back it up um, even beyond that. Just start with stem cells, just to make sure everybody's on the same okay. page. So a stem cell is a, is a cell that's found in the body that can turn into other things. Okay, so you can think of it as a cell that hasn't decided about what it's going to become when it grows up. Um, so a stem cell can turn into a heart cell, it can turn into liver cells, it can turn into brain cells, and there's different types of stem cells. There's classes of them in terms of how powerful they are, okay? Before we even get to pluripotent, we can talk about multipotent, okay? Multipotent means that the stem cells can turn into a, a subset of everything. So there's, say, blood stem cells that can only turn into the cell types that are found in the blood, like the white blood cells, the red blood cells, or that kind of stuff. So those blood stem cells are multipotent. Pluripotent is even more powerful than multipotent. Pluripotent means that the stem cell can really turn into pretty much anything. So it, it's not just exclusive for turning into blood cells. But it could turn into blood cells, it could turn into brain cells, liver cells, heart cells, skin cells. And so those are like, those are the most powerful types of stem cells that are out there, these pluripotent stem cells that can turn into pretty much anything. How do you get them or make them? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of different ways. I mean, the most well-known and perhaps controversial way is uh, from embryonic tissues, right? So these embryonic stem cells, embryonic pluripotent stem cells, uh, are found very early during the development of an embryo, and they can be extracted from a very, very early stage uh, during embryonic development, which, of course, you know, would destroy the embryo, and that's why this is a, that's a controversial um, area of study. And the reality is that not as many people are working with embryonic stem cells anymore. They're definitely very powerful, but... For me, for example, I'm a trained stem cell biologist. I I don't work with these cells anymore because there's an alternative now. There's another way that you can make pluripotent stem cells, these very powerful type of stem cells, without destroying an embryo. And this is what I actually first heard about uh, in college. I alluded to this earlier. These are called induced pluripotent stem cells, and we call them IPSCs for short. Uh, the exciting thing about these pluripotent stem cells that, like I said, you don't have to destroy an embryo to, to get them. All you have to do is take a small sample of someone's own skin or blood. You just need like a drop of white blood cells, basically. And what you can do is you can, quote, reprogram those white blood cells to turn into a stem cell. 
and it's amazing. It's an amazing process that only takes about a month to complete. So you literally just go from white blood cell to pluripotent stem cell that can then turn into anything else. From those iPSC pluripotent stem cells, you can turn those into brain or blood or liver or heart or whatever. Um, and that's why it's so powerful. This technology was first described and discovered, like I said, when I was in college in 2006 and 2007. And it only took five years for that technology to win the Nobel Prize in medicine. And that never happened. That never happened, that accelerated path to getting the most coveted prize in, in research. Happened in just five years, and it was awarded to this guy, Shinya Yamanaka, a Japanese scientist, for discovering these induced pluripotent stem cells. And that's what we use. That's what most stem cell biologists use these days in their laboratories. These, you know, not so controversial stem cells that are not created from embryos. They're just created from a small sample of someone's own skin or blood. But they're just as powerful as the other guys. So um, we have a note uh, from listener Todd in San Diego. And he's asking you the question that I ask you off air. So now we'll ask it on air, and it'll be under Todd's name. Todd says, does it matter the age of the donor of the blood or the white stem cells if you're already old or elderly or having problems? Is it too old, too late to turn them into pluripotent stem cells? No, not at all. And that, that's one of the amazing things about this technology. Uh, we've actually done this research in my laboratory and other re- research laboratories around the world. You can get, like, say, a drop of blood from, like, uh, somebody who's 18, or you can get a drop of blood from somebody who's 80. And those blood cells, whether it's from the young individual or the older individual, they can both be reprogrammed into induced pluripotent stem cells and, quote, rejuvenate those uh, stem cells in a way. Um, it's really an, an amazing technology. It's almost like you're going back in time when you're creating these stem cells. It's really powerful. Now, what does space have to do with this? What, what, why would you send pluripotent stem cells to space? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, over the years, there's, of course, been a, a lot of biological research in space. We want to understand what's actually happening to the human body as you know, astronauts go to, uh, to space and eventually go to deep space and missions to the moon and Mars and beyond. So from a basic science level, we want to know what's going on, to the human, going on with the human body in space. And there have been examples of how microgravity, low gravity, that's been found at the International Space Station, for example, um, it can be really unique. It's, it's something that our bodies and our cells and our bodies are not routinely exposed to. Of course, we don't always think about it because I'm just sitting <laughs> in my office and I'm in the presence of 1G, right, 1 gravity. And I'm assuming that everybody listening to the show is going to be on Earth, so you're going to have about 1G being exposed to all the cells in your body right now. Right. And that's what your body is used to. That's what the cells in your body are used to. Now, take that variable out or alter that variable to, to microgravity, and we know that there are huge changes that happen to the human body in space. Of course, there's physiological changes, bone, muscle, heart degrade and change shape, and, of course, astronauts aboard the International Space Station are exercising all the time just to counteract some of those negative effects of space, of microgravity on, say, the muscles and the bones and, uh, and the heart as well. 
But we still don't have a great understanding of what actually happens to the cells of the body, okay? We have an understanding that the bones as a whole, they degrade. Muscles as a whole, they degrade. But what happens to the bone cells or the muscle cells or the heart cells? And so that's what I've been really focused on in, in my research, even ranging from now back to when I was a graduate student at Stanford. Um, back in 2016, we actually sent a sample of pluripotent stem cell, induced pluripotent stem cell, derived heart muscle cells. So these are beating heart cells that you can see beat in a dish. We actually sent those to the International Space Station, and you can, uh, if you're interested in this project, it's, um, you know, you can look it up online and just search my name, 2016 Project International Space Station. We sent these stem cell-derived beating heart cells to the space station to study what's happening to the human heart, the cells of the human heart in space. Because like I said, we don't have as much of an understanding at the cell level of what's going on in the human body. And so that's one application is, you know, understanding what's happening to the cells of the human heart in space. The other thing that we're working on right now in my new laboratory at Cedar sinai is using microgravity as an advantage. So instead of as a detriment where microgravity causes negative effects to the human body, we want to see how microgravity could enhance stem cell production. And, the, and there's some really cool data that's showing that the way stem cells divide or behave or turn to other cell types could be altered in the presence of this low-gravity environment. Like I said, the stem cells and the cells of the body are used to 1G. And when you alter that variable, the properties associated with the stem cells change fundamentally. And we think they might be able to change in a good way. Perhaps the cells could divide better in space. Perhaps they could turn into other cell types faster. And that's what we're hoping to investigate right now in my new laboratory at Cedar sinai uh, you have another email. This is Jacqueline in San Mateo. That's in California, listeners, for those of you who don't know. And uh, Jacqueline says, how do you know when your project in space is finished and how do you get the end product back to Earth or do or is there no end product and all you're dealing with is digital data? No, that's a, that's a great question. So initially we're going to be doing experiments that are pretty much entirely done in space and we don't have anything that's coming back because we, we're doing basic science experiments just trying to figure out what's happening to the cells when we put them in microgravity. In fact, we had a project that we launched to the space station aboard the Axiom-2 mission last month, which was just a, a week-long project and we were sending these pluripotent stem cells and these pluripotent stem cells to the space station, seeing how they divide, seeing how they grew, uh, and just looking at them basically with, with help from astronauts, of course, uh, through a microscope. But we didn't bring anything back. The next step of the project is we want to bring stuff back. So we actually want to create these induced pluripotent stem cells in microgravity and then using, uh, with a lot of help from our partners in, uh, in aerospace engineering, mechanical engineering, for example, Biosurf Space Technology based in Colorado, we're able to design custom pieces of equipment that can bring back whatever we make in space. Um, and then we can do further analyses of these space-created products in our laboratory at, at Cedars-Sinai. So that is, that's a good question, and that's one thing we're hoping to do next. Um, here's another uh, question. Uh, Jack is in Tucson, Arizona, by email. And he says, um, 
take uh, cardiac problems, for example, um, is it your hope to bring back something that you've made that you could insert into a human to fix a bad heart? Is that the goal or is that too simple? Well, I think that is a goal long term. Um, I think that's one of the grand goals of stem cell biology and regenerative medicine just in general is being able to create replacement organs. Now, the, what we're trying to understand is, you know, way ahead of that goal. Okay, that's, that's something that I th- still think multiple decades down the road. We're, we're getting closer. But right now we're trying to understand, you know, taking the example of the heart, we're just trying to understand at the cell level, one, what's happening to heart cells in space, and two, could we actually make these cells better from their stem cell populations in space? And if that's true, then I think that unlocks a lot of doors for what we call in-space biomanufacturing or manufacturing products of biological origin for return back to the ground. And so that that question is, is perfectly valid, but... I think that is addressing something that's a bit further down the road. Um, How far down the road is using this research to help humans go to Mars or live on the moon? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I'll I'll, I'll actually take space out of the equation for a second here. Okay. Um, This this sort of research where we're, you know, making uh, IPSC or stem cell-derived heart tissue, that... um, that research is very actively being conducted on the ground here in, in mm-hmm. hospitals and research laboratories. Um, in fact, there are certain clinical trials that are happening right now where we're making stem cell-derived heart muscle cells by the billions and basically turning them into almost like a Band-Aid for the heart. So after somebody has a heart attack where, you know, and this is the one of the sad realities of having a heart attack is because the human heart, adult human heart, doesn't regenerate itself very well, you lose a lot of the heart cells in your heart after a heart attack and they don't come back. And so this stem cell-derived heart band-aid, what we might be able to do is put that back on the heart of somebody after they have a heart attack to help restore that lost function. And that is indeed going into people. That's starting, uh, those clinical trials are starting uh, here in the U.S. and also across across the, the world in Germany and Japan. Um, and they're early on, but that is happening right now. We're not growing entire replacement hearts from stem cells, but we are making these patches, these tissues that may be able to help heart function. Now, bringing space back into the equation, the question is, if we're able to find that stem cells grow faster or better in space, then perhaps we can actually make those heart tissues better in space. Now, again, very early for for us to make those conclusions, but that's something that we're really interested in figuring out. So what does that do for somebody in space settlement who wants to go to Mars or, or live on the moon? Anything at all, or it's just not part of the equation yeah. right now? Yeah, so, you know, I, I'll just I'll dream big, right? I'll dream big here for a okay. second. The w- one thought is, yeah, um, if somebody's going to the moon or Mars or beyond, Obviously, you know, there's not a supply of replacement tissue in, on hand. So on, on the ground here on Earth, if somebody has a problem with their heart or their liver or whatever, what, what happens? They get a transplant, right? Right. They get a replacement organ. The one grand thought 
is what if we could create these organs for colonists or astronauts or whoever uh, in the situation that they have, uh, you know, something bad happened to their heart or liver or skin or, or, or finger or something. So can we print them a new organ from, say, stem cell-derived tissues, stem cell-derived uh, heart cells, muscle cells, liver, whatever you want to call it? That is a very long-term dream, but I think something that we could aspire to. Um, again, in the realm of science fiction right now, but I'm a science fiction fan, and as a stem cell biologist, I'd like to think that down the road we'll be able to make this happen. Um, this is sort of an interesting Strange question. This is is Lonnie, and he says, someplace in Minnesota. <laughs> okay. And he says, uh, I live sort of borderline in the wilderness, and I have a lot of animals around me. Some are wild, and many are pets. For example, I have six dogs. I have noticed that many of the medicines and the treatments for my dogs, for example, are pretty much identical to what humans take or to surgical procedures or treatments that humans get. Does any of this research, is any of it being done on animals? And if so, what animals? And does any of it apply to being used on our pets or working animals or horses, for example, that are worth a lot of money because of what they do, maybe race horses? Uh, will this translate to animals as well as humans? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we can make these induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs from animals because of the animals, of course, have DNA. They have cells that we can reprogram. People have been able to make, say, pig iPSCs, basically take a small sample of, like, pig blood, and then, again, same process, reprogramming, reprogramming that into a stem cell. Um, there's actually other really interesting applications for this work when it comes to animal preservation. Um, one, there's some colleagues that I have in San Diego and also in Germany who are trying to make, um, you know, gametes or sperm and egg cells from these stem cells from species that would otherwise be dying out. So, say, endangered species, like one example that uh, my colleagues are working on is the white rhino this really rare rhino that's in critical danger of extinction, what they've been able to do is create a small sample of uh, skin or blood cells from one of the last white rhinos out there, turn those white rhino cells uh, into induced pluripotent stem cells, which, by the way, I, I, didn't, I didn't mention this, those iPSCs, once you make them, they can, you can freeze them, you can grow them forever, basically which is basically you're almost like immortalizing that animal that's about to die out, right? Uh -huh. Their hope is from that white rhino-derived stem cells, you can turn those cells into skin. Oh, sorry, you can turn them into sperm or egg cells. And what does that mean? You can, from sperm or egg, of course, you can create new white rhinos, right? So it's a, it's a really unique way to preserve animals and preserve animal species that may be in danger of dying out. Um for what's called reproductive medicine. And I think there's a, a lot of applications, not just for therapeutic, like, say, you know, replacing a, a lost heart or injured heart, 
but also for preservation, for reproductive medicine as well, for this, uh, for this technology. Is that a clone of the right rhino that you have created when you do that process? I, it's, it, I would say, you know, if you make the, you know, and again, this is not what I'm working on currently. You know, I'm a, I'm a heart biologist. These are folks, uh, other folks who are working on this area. If you create that rhino's own induced pluripotent stem cells and then turn them into gani, turn them into sperm and egg, um, you are, I guess, creating half a clone, if you can think of it, right? Because you can turn it into a sperm or egg, but then you still need somebody, another rhino sperm or egg to, to turn it into another generation of the animal. Um, it is, I, I wouldn't say it's exactly a clone because you are creating a, a cell population, you're not creating an entire animal from those iPSCs. But then again, like if you turn the, the iPSCs into a sperm or egg, then you're creating a new animal. So I would say you're half a clone. Does that make sense? Uh, listeners, you can give us a call besides email. It is Sunday, so I can't imagine you're all busy at work, so you can't use the phone. Uh, but the phone is 866-687-7223. We have sufficient time for you to give us a call. Again, one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. So Ben is uh, over in Denver, and Ben says, um, "If uh, I'm deemed too sensitive with this question, just tell me." But where does funding come from? This where does funding come from for this type of research? Yeah, it's a valid question. So I guess this type of research is a, I guess that's a broad classification. Um, when it comes to induced pluripotent stem cells, again, stem cells that we can just create from skin or blood cells, you know, not so ethically controversial, I would say. That sort of work is being funded by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, for example. There are laboratories around the country that are working on this kind of work. Um, anything related to the heart stuff that my lab is working on is funded by, say, the American Heart Association as well as the National Institute of Health. For the NASA-related work that my laboratory is doing, the space-related stuff, that work is funded by NASA, um, and we have a grant from NASA to examine biomanufacturing space. So, you know, these are uh, areas of various areas that are funded by a number of different funding agencies. And the other thing I'd like to mention is because my laboratory is in California, we have what's called the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine here, or CIRM, C-I-R-M. And CIRM is actually um, a, a massive funder of stem cell and regenerative medicine here exclusively in the state of California. I think uh, multiple billions of dollars uh, state-mandated state funding for stem cell research specifically in California. And that's why California has become such, in my opinion, the world leader for stem cell research and regenerative medicine because of, you know, state-level support from uh, institutions such as CERN. Um, Cheryl is in Portland, Oregon, and uh, she says, uh, can you clarify something for me? Uh, both my parents used to live in California, and they were treated for various medical things at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in L.A., so I've always been aware that it's a top-ranked hospital. It's top-ranked even in the U.S. News and World Report rankings of hospitals. 
where did the research arm come from? I was not aware it was doing basic research. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you're right. I mean, Cedars currently is ranked as, I think, the number two hospital in the country from uh, U.S. News and also number one ranked in California. It's a tremendous clinical institution, and we do, for example, the most heart transplants in the entire country. Um, and a lot of folks don't know that we actually also have a tremendous basic research division here at Cedars as well. Everything that we do at Cedars has a, a, a clinical and a patient-focused um, uh, patient focus. So even the basic science that we do, it's very translational, which means, you know, everything that we're doing is in hopes of helping people. Um, there are all sorts of basic science that are happening across the country. Some folks who are just trying to study why cells behave the way they do, but with no specific interest in putting things into people or helping clinical, uh, solve clinical problems. But at Cedars, that's really our focus, even for our basic science, is helping patients. Um, you have a phone call. Uh, hi, okay. good, good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the show. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hey, David. It's John in Fremont, California. Hi, John. Hi. Um, I, hey, I was wondering, so you mentioned that um, these uh, stem cells uh, that you can create in the lab that they're they're capable of being um, turned into any any cell like a, a brain cell or or heart. What is that process? How, how is how is that triggered? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for calling. It's a it's a really great question. Um, that process varies based on the cell that you're interested in. Say you want to turn this stem cell into a heart cell, which is what my laboratory does all the time. That's kind of our, our bread and butter, you could say. That's a process that takes about two to three weeks to complete. So after about two weeks of basically adding certain chemicals, certain proteins into these stem cells, they'll just transform into a beating heart cell. Uh, and it's very, it's amazing to see. It's, it's one of the reasons that I'm actually doing this kind of research because it's just so, it's so fun to work with these cells. You can actually just see them beat in a dish. And like I said, it only takes a couple of weeks for that to happen. Other cell types, uh, and I can't fully speak to them just because I, I don't work in that specific area, but say brain cells, neurons, which, you know, we have billions of neurons in our brain. You can turn a stem cell into a brain cell in a course that takes a, about a month to complete. Different, different small molecules, different chemicals, different proteins that we add to the stem cells to turn them into neurons. Uh, those are different from the ones that we use for the heart cells. But it doesn't take forever. It only takes a few weeks to complete. Now, one thing that is really important to consider, and maybe you're wondering, okay, we're able to make these things in a few weeks, is are they the same as the, the heart cells or brain cells that are found in my body, which, like, you know, I've been growing. I'm, I'm 33 years old. So are the cells that I make in two or three weeks the same as the cells that are found in my 33-year-old heart? And the answer is no. They're not, they're not the same. They're not uh, perfectly the same, and, and you wouldn't expect them to be. Um, they are much more what we call immature. So they're, that's something that we really want to figure out in the field as to how we make these cells that takes us a few weeks to, to make them. How do we make them perfect? How do we make them like, say, a 33-year-old human heart cell? Um, but it's a, it's a really good question. When you say they're immature, uh, are they 
they like um, a, a cell that would be like in an infant or a young child, or what do you mean? Yeah, you you can say that they're something that's, yeah, much more, yeah, you could say something like a, an infant-like cell. I wouldn't say that they're equivalent, again, to cells that we find in an infant or anything like that, but they're much younger in their, what we call their profile, in terms of the, the genes that they turn on and off, the proteins that they have. Um, they are definitely much younger in that way. And how do you find the proteins that trigger a particular type of cell? Yeah, great, great question, great question. This is um, research that has been done for long, long time, way before these induced pluripotent stem cells ever came out, um, decades and decades of studying, say, you know, mice and studying animals and figuring out how the heart, for example, actually develops in the body. You know, scientists have been working on this, developmental biologists have been working on this for decades, centuries now, understanding the proteins and the, the pathways and the genes that are used to, say, create the heart. And from that foundation of work, we uh, were able to pick and choose the right protein because of all that research that's happened before us. And then we know that if we turn on protein A or B or C and add that to our stem cell, even in a dish, those stem cells will still turn into beating heart cells, even outside the body in a dish. So in a way, you're trying to replicate the same processes that happen in the body during development outside of the body in a dish. It's pretty amazing if you think about it, that it still works. That's incredible. Um, what is the TRL for um, uh, mass-producing uh, stem cells on, in, in low Earth orbit? And have you been working yeah, yeah. with um, any of the small startup companies that are working on space manufacturing like Varda? Yeah, it's it's great that you you mentioned Barda. Um, you know that we've uh, I've had some great conversations with them. Uh, the technology readiness level for this is this is still very fundamental. I would say this is still uh, pretty early on. We're still trying to understand actually what's happening to the cells in space, and we're starting to get some clues in terms of what behaves better. Um, but we, if you're, if you're asking about a product, like a specific product that we're hoping to bring to market, it's not something that uh, we have in the immediate future. And again, I'm a, a basic science researcher in a, in a research laboratory. Um, that's kind of what I do, is understand how these things happen. But I, my, my vision is that we're going to find that, quote, killer app in stem cell research in space within the next five years. And then once we find that and we're able to re reproduce it again and again, that's when the clinical and the, the commercial enterprise can come into play for actually mass produce those products that we can create from this research. Awesome. Uh, thank you for your hey, research. John, uh, John, don't, yeah. don't get off the phone. I have a question for Arun based on a lot of what you talk about. John has an interest in the need to determine the gravity prescription for humans to be on a space settlement, uh, either on a planetary surface like the moon or Mars, or probably because of 1G on an orbiting platform. Can somehow these stem cells be used to enhance the capabilities of humans to reproduce 
uh, in less than 1G? Um, I don't even know how to ask the question, but I guess maybe I'm talking about, you know, modifying humans through these stem cells to to be okay with one less than one G for uh, developing a fetus and even raising children later on, rather than having to be in one G. Uh, is there any work or thought or uh, likely scenario where stem cells would be useful in in that process of space development? Oh wow, <laughs> that's that's quite a question. Um, you know, that's we're we're not even close to addressing something like that. Um, I mean, there are technologies that are emerging in biomedical research that allow you to modify, say, DNA. Uh, but using these kind of things for reproductive human medicine, you know, it, it's it's not something that we're envisioning and doing in the near future. Okay, I tried. Uh, I, I would. <laughs> I, I would. I would say no. I don't think I don't think it'll help. Well, not in our lifetime, at least, John. So, um, uh, John, thank you very much for your call. I appreciate it. Are you still with us? I guess he's off the line. Um, listeners, you too can um, can give us a call. It is eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. Arun, do you there there have been some ethical considerations in some of this kind of research uh, coming from other countries primarily? Uh, is this an issue um, that you guys face in your lab and other researchers face as to what's ethical, what's not ethical? Because I remember when Dolly the sheep was in the news, there were was news that. China would clone a, a human being for what ten thousand dollars or something like that. A company in China, so I know yeah. there have been some pushing the limits, if not pure ethical violations. What are the ethical norms that you guys have to follow? Yeah, it's it's a very important question. Um, all the research that we do is, uh, you know, there there's certain things that we can and cannot do, right? Um, and we have a number of different methods of oversight for the research that we do. For example, um, at the level of the institution, at the level of Cedars-Sinai, the research that we do is evaluated by what's called the Stem Cell Research Oversight Committee, which or SCRO, which makes sure that in the research that we're doing is, uh, for example, not looking at reproduction or human reproductive medicine or creating clones or that sort of thing, which is not even close to what my laboratory or our work at Cedar sinai is doing anyways. Um, but that's one level of safeguard. The other level of safeguard is at the level of the funding body, okay, so the folks who decide to fund the research that we do. They will not fund us if we're doing things that, we're not, uh, that are not ethically approved, okay, which is, for example, human cloning. You can't get funding for that. That's just not because of the ethical considerations. Um, now, there are new technologies, like I've alluded to, in biomedical research, which have really revolutionized biomedical research recently. Um, I would say within the last 20 years, we've had just an exponential growth in the number of technologies 
that are game-changing in biomedical research. And in my mind, it's a golden age for biology right now because of the things that we can do research-wise. And some of these technologies are exceptionally powerful. Like I mentioned, induced fluorophobic stem cells or iPSCs, which I, I talked about, it's creating stem cells from a small sample of someone's own skin or blood. That's incredible, right? There's, of course, also uh, genome editing, CRISPR. Maybe folks have heard of CRISPR research. It's a way you can rapidly modify DNA. Anything that has DNA can be modified. So all animals have DNA, and humans have DNA too, so we can use CRISPR in genome editing to modify DNA. Now, that, of course, is, is something that could be misused. You know, this is unfortunately something that did happen. There were uh, children born in China um, that were modified using CRISPR, and there was understandably an uproar in the research community when that happened because, you know, there wasn't a, a justifiable reason for using that embryo modification technology in humans, and in part because the technology itself for modifying DNA is not perfect. So when it comes to ethical considerations, I think for a lot of these technologies, emerging technology in biomedical research, we have to be careful of, of what we can do and what we can't do. And I think there are appropriate oversight um, at the funding level, at the institutional level, um, for us to, to limit that those, say, rogue actors or bad actors from, from doing that kind of work. But, you know, <laughs> that's not to say there aren't folks around the world um, who may be able to use these technologies, these super powerful technologies for, uh, for, for unethical means, you know. Um, there's all sorts of people out there. There's all sorts of scientists out there, unfortunately. So we have to be really cognizant and really aware with the power of, of the technologies that we're using in our laboratories. Uh, how often uh, is CEDAR sending stem cells to space? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, we, like I said, we launched this project to the International Space Station a month ago. It's something we were working on for a couple of years just leading up to this project. And um, we are going to be doing this again. We're going to be sending more stem cells and potentially even producing induced fluorocodon stem cells in the International Space Station. That's happening I'm going to say early next year. We have to think about launch delays and that kind of sort of thing and some logistical considerations. But we're going to be having at least two more launches uh, that we're going to be sending research projects to, to space. And that's in this specific uh, NASA funding that we have right now, this, uh, this amount of money that we have from NASA to do these projects. But we have um, other NASA grants, NASA funding that will enable us to, to send more projects to space. So I think this is something that we want to continue doing into the near future and potentially establish ourselves as one of the world leaders for doing biomedical research in space. I think that's uh, one of the hopes at the institutional level for procedures here. Uh, Harry in New York says, do you choose your own launcher? Or is the launcher specified in your NASA grant, or how do you get on a launch? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's a good question. So we we're 
We're, uh, we don't necessarily pick and choose the launcher. Um, we're just trying to get up there, you know, as, in terms of timing uh, as soon as we can. So typically we utilize uh, the SpaceX Falcon 9 for, and the Dragon capsule for loading our experiments. Um, but in terms of, uh, but, but there's other opportunities for saying, uh, for using Northrop Grumman or the Cygnus capsule or, or other means as well. Um, so we're 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 not locked down to any one particular launcher. We're just trying to get up there as as efficiently, safely, and uh, quickly as possible. Um, do you um, so w- wherever you can wherever you can get the ride uh, as fast as pos- possible? That's pretty much what you take. So timing is a is a big factor over cost, or are you ride sharing? Well, we are sort of, some of those um, ride-sharing costs are built into our NASA grant that we don't actually have to cover, which is really nice because okay. uh, certainly it, it is not cheap to, to send things to space, that's for I, sure. Right. Um, but you know, part of the grant is if, the money that we're using is for developing our research, not necessarily for for managing launch costs. So we basically can find we're guaranteed a spot. But we just don't know what spot, when that spot is gonna to take off, right? When that spot is gonna be. Um, but we don't necessarily have to worry about those specific launch costs. Is your lab at, at Cedars, uh, at the main Cedars place, or are you scattered all over Los Angeles? No, so my lab is actually at the the main Cedars location in uh, West Hollywood, at the intersection of Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, in LA. Do people get tours of your lab? Is there anything to see? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it's something that typically doesn't happen. I mean, we do have occasional tours for educational purposes, uh, for the greater community, and also for students as well. Um, I mean, things to see, you know, we <laughs> like showing folks the beating heart cells that we're working with, the stem cells that we work with. Uh, it's, a, it's a cool visual. And sometimes we do have, you know, certain folks from uh, from local government to stop by and see what's going on, some some dignitaries as well. But uh, typically we don't have public tours. It's something I wish that we did, um, unless you're a student, actually. So, you know, we have, for example, high school programs that we're actively involved with right now um, where we actually take high school interns and college interns and have them work in our laboratories to to get them interested in science and, and space research and heart research and stem cell research. So um, plenty of opportunities at the, the educational level for, for the work that we do. Is it a clean room environment or your lab's not based on that? It, it, is, it is to an extent. Um, we do the cell work in clean rooms just because we want to avoid contamination. We want to make sure that the, the things that we're working on are free of bacteria and viruses and all these kinds of things. It, it, I don't think it's, um, say, you know, uh, a, a JPL-level clean room, uh, although we do have a biomanufacturing facility on campus at Peter sinai that has a clinical-level clean room for producing cell products and cell technologies and biomedical technologies that ultimately do go into patients. So for that, you do have to have a clinical-level clean room. But for my laboratory, since we're not putting things into people, we're not we're doing basic science research. Uh, we don't have that level of clean room. Um, Harriet, 
is Boston, and I know we're coming up on the hour. Uh, she says, um, I'm curious if you can do these stem cells from something other than blood. For example, could you get stem cells from a recently dead person or animal? Could you also get stem cells from an archaeological find? That's a really interesting question. Um, what we use to create these induced protein stem cells are living cells. So it's something that has, for one, it has DNA. For two, it's able to still grow in a dish in our laboratory that we can reprogram these cells back into the stem cell. Um, so from a, a recently deceased individual, it, it should, I believe it is feasible to, to generate these induced pluripotent stem cells, but um, they have to be preserved in a certain capacity for that stem cell production process to actually happen. Um, for the archaeological side of it, so the long-term, you know, uh, hey, can you make these induced pluripotent stem cells from, from dinosaurs? For <laughs> right. dinosaur bones or whatever. That's going to be way harder, and again, because you have to have living cells living tissues to actually work with. Um, now, you know, that's in the realm of, say, Jurassic Park or whatever you want to talk about. Um, you know, one thought is maybe you can uh, sequence the DNA. You can figure out the DNA of that dinosaur um, and, you know, uh, use that for research purposes, but in terms of creating induced pluripotent stem cells from that archaeological finding, I think that's going to be a lot tougher. Um, I know we, we talked about an hour for the program. Is there anything we should have asked you? I know we could probably talk to you for the next month and, you know, it'd be like attending a class with you, but uh, anything that, that we, well, you've got an 11th hour call. Remember, I, I said don't call at the 11th hour, so we'll have time to talk to you. So I'm happy to stick around for a little longer. Good, good afternoon, <laughs> listener. Welcome to our program today. Who are you and where are you, please? Good afternoon. This is uh, Gene in Pasadena. Hi, Gene. <clears throat> Haven't heard from you for Hi. a while. Yeah, yeah. It's been, uh, I've been working on things. Um, I actually contacted you, uh, uh, Dr. Sharma, a few months ago about your last name. I was asking if you were related to Alakshma. Um, but uh, that's a little bit about a project that I'm working on that has to do with building very much larger uh, space stations from the fuel tanks of the SLS rocket. And uh, one of the uh, points that I make when I talk to a congressman about this is that this having that those much, much larger facilities, those, those tanks are about as big as the 747, would allow the type of research that you do to go forward much faster because you'd be able to have the analytical equipment up there uh, to uh, run the tests that you plan to run and then, uh, you know, do the analysis and then rerun the test maybe a few days or, you know, a couple of weeks later without having to have it come down to Earth, do the analysis, schedule a flight and go back up there again. So I have three quick questions. One is... Um, I wanted to know what the weight and the size of the analytical equipment that you use on the ground uh, is. When you, if you get samples back from the ISS and you want to do an analysis of them, 
and and make a decision on what you know what to do next. Is that the equipment that takes up an entire room or a suitcase or and what 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 size rough? Yeah, yeah. So to answer that question, it depends on the analysis. So some analysis that we do um, can be automated, and it can those analytical devices, say in our laboratory, can be fit in the size of a shoebox. So, for example, we have a microscope in our lab that's a little bit bigger than a shoebox. Um, we have a way that we can evaluate how heart cells are actually beating the stem cell-derived heart cells that we make. And, again, that, that tool is about the size of a shoebox. There are other more advanced pieces of equipment, like more advanced microscopes, high-resolution microscopes, um, other DNA sequencers and that sort of thing, which can be a bit larger. And I, I think the other part of taking these pieces of equipment and bringing them to space is understanding how the fluid dynamics and the fluidics are going to be changed. In, in utilizing these pieces of equipment in microgravity. Um, I think, but, but it's not to say it's impossible. There are folks who have done DNA sequencing in space. That, that's something that happened within the last five years. People have done CRISPR-based genome, genome editing experiments in space. So I think, you know, automating these assays, automating these experiments, and making sure they're what's called high throughput or scaling them up, those are the two criteria that I think we need to meet for taking some of these advanced pieces of equipment from our laboratories to the space station. Okay, and then when you get when you get your samples and you begin the analysis process, uh, how how you know you're on Earth with the equipment that you have, how long does it take before, in general? I realize this is going to vary from case to case. Uh, in general, before you reach a conclusion as to what you've got and uh, yeah. start um, planning on what the next phase of the experiment might be. Is that something that could be done in a few days, a few weeks, or does it take months? Yeah, and, before yeah, and again, that, that depends on the analysis. Um, for example, the analysis that we did aboard the Axiom 2 mission for using, for growing the stem cells for a week, that analysis was actually done entirely in space. So we didn't have anything that came back. That was entirely, that was pretty much real-time analysis from microscopes aboard the International Space Station, which, of course, the, the, the astronauts were helping us out in terms of their imaging uh, capabilities. But, you know, previous experiments that I've done, we've had to bring cells back, we had to bring samples back, and those analyses have taken multiple months, not necessarily because of limitations in the intrinsic to the analysis, but more logistical issues. It could have been faster, but for various reasons, things took longer. So, um, but I agree. You know, I think accelerating all of these analyses is really the way to go. Okay. Okay. Uh, do you work with a... Oh, yeah. Gene, you're cutting out. We can't, enter, we can't understand you. Try again, please. Okay. Work with a... Called uh, he's totally cutting out. Do you, are you understanding him, Arun? I, I, I might have an idea of what he's referring to, but I can't hear the entire name. Gene, we we totally lost your phone line. So, um, no? okay. 
thank you. Uh, okay, thank All you right. so much for your call. I, I wish the phone was not acting up for you, but uh, uh, um, listeners, um, uh, we are over time, but if you really, really hurry before I get through signing off, uh, we'll take your call, 866-687-7223. I have one more question on my part for you, and that is we are going to lose the ISS in a couple of years. Um, You know, it'll be retired. And uh, there's all the, I think there's four or five private commercial space stations that are in some state of development, R&D, Implementation. Some are a little better and further along than others. Some, you know, have different uh, operations planned. I think a couple of them are polar orbit stations. Um, What is your thought? Were these private stations, or have you focused in on one of them, for example, that can fit the bill for your ongoing research? Will it be more efficient or less efficient? I mean, you're using a national lab up there in space, and there's not going to be a national lab on these private space stations. Um, And you've also got an incredible crew with uh, really unique talents and capabilities and educational qualities. That might not be up there on the private space station. So are you worried about this? No, I, I'm, I'm really not because I think the private space stations, uh, for one, it's inevitable. Like you said, ISS is being decommissioned, and we have to have something to, to fill the gap. Um, and two, I'm, I'm not necessarily worried about, say, the, the expertise that will be aboard those private space stations because I think one thing that will be really exciting is for for certain mission specialists to go to, say, the Axiom Station or uh, the, the Blue Origin Station. Say, say there's someone who's sending a stem cell research experiment to the International Space Station, and they want to have somebody with a specific expertise in stem cell biology. And perhaps there could be a mission specialist astronaut who can go to that private space station and do that experiment um, do specifically that experiment. That's not something that we have right now. Of course, the astronauts that we work with are exceptionally talented individuals, and a number of them have biomedical research background, but they're not necessarily specialists in a specific research area. And I think that's um, perhaps something that would be very advantageous in the the private side of things. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think there's also a lot of opportunity for doing types of research that currently cannot be conducted aboard the International Space Station because of, say, safety restrictions and, and that sort of thing. Um, perhaps those are new opportunities that we'd be able to, to leverage the private space stations for. Would you want to go be a mission specialist and go up and manage your own experiment? <laughs> uh, yes. Absolutely, I would love to. As a, as a kid from Huntsville, that is uh, that was the original dream, and it still is the dream. So, absolutely, I would love to. Have we overlooked something? Is there something we should have asked you about that would be really important for this kind of a basic introduction to what you're doing? Because I'm I'm hoping we can continue to talk to you more and more about this field because it's really fascinating and. Uh, and it's really fascinating to me on several levels, but I think to the audience as well. Uh, have we left something out? Have we overlooked something? 
No, I think I think we've covered quite a bit, and it's, it's been a great overview of what my laboratory is working on and what the field is working on. I just want to kind of leave your listeners with, with two points. One, just to reiterate and reemphasize something that I said earlier, it's a golden age in biomedical research because of the amazing technologies, say, like induced chlorophyll stem cells that we can use in our research laboratories and ultimately to help um, human lives. Two, um, if you're a junior person, if you're, say, a college student or high school student um, who's wanting to get into this area of study, it is the best time to do it for, for, like I said, because these technologies are so amazing and there's so many cool things to learn. And three, bringing all this together, uh, incorporating space into the equation, this is the best time to be involved in space research. Because with launch costs going down and the, the, the new space race and also with um, commercial and private entity entities uh, developing private space station, um, it, it's easier to do research in space than it ever has been. So, you know, this is something that I got started in as a graduate student. And I know folks who are high schoolers who have sent experiments to the International Space Station and uh, it's just going to get easier and easier. So I'm just so excited to be working in this area right now. Well, you're lucky that you're a young guy in your early 30s because uh, you won't recognize the world by the time you're my age at 77. So <laughs> it, it'll, it, it'll be a foreign, a foreign world for sure. Uh, Aruna, I want to thank you incredibly a lot for giving us your time today and talking about this. I hope we can stay in touch and talk to you some more about some of these issues and matters and research and stuff, not just from Cedars, but within the industry as, as well. And I certainly look forward to that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having do, do you go to conferences, Arun? I do. Yeah, I, would. I, I do. I, um, I was at the Space Summit in, uh, in Colorado. Uh, I'm at going to the International Research uh, International Space Station Research and Development Conference that's happening next month in Seattle. So uh, yeah, you'll catch me at different conferences. Do you go to the AIAA Ascend Conference in later October in Las Vegas? Uh, yes, I, I believe I should be there uh, because I'm involved with a another initiative and I, I'm still figuring out my travel plans, but I'm planning on being there. Well, I'll I'll find you if you're there and get a chance to, to meet you because I'll, I'll be covering it for media. So uh, uh, I look forward to that. And, um, awesome. again, this is, has been really great, and I want to thank you, and uh, I'll send you the link to the show when we when we get it up and post it. And uh, I look forward to more, and uh, thank you for doing this kind of work. It's, it's really important and really, really interesting. Um, and for your so clarity and explaining it to people who don't have the background that you have. So we'll talk again down the road. Uh, All right. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Listeners, that's it for today. And on behalf of Arun and David and myself, well, that's a little bit redundant, David and the Space Show, uh, we wish all of you a great closing down of today's weekend, a terrific week coming up, and, of course, keep looking up. Once again, goodbye from the Space Show.